And let's be clear, we exist only as a Great Commission people. We exist in order that sinners will hear the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ and believe and be saved from all the nations. The marching orders of the Church of Jesus Christ were to go into all the world and preach the gospel because the gospel has the power unto salvation. This is what it means to follow Christ. A call to live, a call to die, a call to spend your life for Jesus here and around the world until he returns. This is Amazon to the Himalayas podcast. I'm your host, Paul Aiken. And this season, we have been on a journey through the different eras of mission history. Now we're taking a step back and we're zeroing in and focusing our attention on individual missionaries who have made a significant impact on the mission of the church. Today, we're going to talk about the life and legacy of Jim Elliott. Jim Elliott is a fascinating figure, one of my favorite missionaries. Oddly enough, we share the same birthday, October 8th. My firstborn son's middle name is Elliot, named after Jim, and he's really been a a hero of mine since I first discovered him in college. I can't say enough about his impact on my life through his story and through various books on his life. Joining me today on the podcast to talk about the life and legacy of Jim Elliot is a very special guest, my dad, Dr. Danny Aiken. Danny Aiken is the sixth president of Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary. He's been serving in that role since 2004, so coming up on nearly 20 years serving as president there. He's known widely as an advocate for international missions, also for expository preaching. He also has, by God's grace, a reputation as a faithful husband, father, and a man of integrity. He's married to Charlotte, and together they have four sons, four daughter-in-laws, and 14 grandchildren. And I'm thrilled to have this conversation today. Dad, welcome to the podcast. Well, Paul, thank you. And as you know, like you, I love to talk about missionaries anytime. Well, I think, why don't we start by just kind of giving a quick overview to our listeners. Who was Jim Elliott? Well, I think Jim Elliott historically is viewed as probably the most influential missionary of the 20th century in part because of the tragic end of his life among the Akas or the Wadani in Ecuador, along with Nate Saint, Pete Fleming, Roger Udarian, and Ed McCulley. Their story went worldwide, even made the cover of Life magazine. He was a passionate follower of Jesus, grew up in a great home. His dad, he says repeatedly, especially in his journal, Uh, had a massive impact on his life. He was a very simple man, no formal education at all. They had missionaries in their home all the time. And so as a teenager, he already sensed even then God's calling to be a missionary and kind of planned his life out in that way. So he uh, played football, he wrestled, evidently wasn't great at either, but he wasn't worried about that. He wanted it to toughen up his body for the rigors of life on the mission field. Went to Wheaton. I found out just a couple of weeks ago that uh, one of my heroes, Stephen Olford, did a series of revivals at uh, Wheaton that really changed and impacted the campus. And Jim Elliott and his wife, Elizabeth, were there at that time. And so he leaves uh, Wheaton, heads to Central America, in particular Ecuador, uh, was going to work among the Akas, but found out that among the Akas, there's a very 
remote people group, the Wadanis, that were vicious, uh, had almost become extinct because of their retaliation of uh, spearing one another. There was a research done by a uh, archaeologist who discovered that six out of every 10 adults going back five generations died from being murdered. So homicide was basically part and partial of that culture. And God put it on the heart of these five men and their wives to take the gospel to them. Mm. Yeah, thanks for giving that that overview. And, and you mentioned some about his his childhood, kind of growing up in the Pacific Northwest in Portland. Oregon. Yeah. And so, you know, we, we don't tend to maybe hear about a lot of missionaries coming from that particular part of the United States, but kind of fascinating to hear about his family and the influence they had on him. And, and yeah, ha- like you mentioned, having missionaries in the home, hearing the gospel at a young age. I, I was reading something recently that said that he made a profession of faith as early as age six, which means his parents were teaching and sharing the gospel with him at a young age. I want to kind of transition to kind of his passion for the unreached. You know, you you talked about kind of his work in Ecuador and then really getting into kind of the heart of the jungle there. But can you talk some about maybe his passion and why he wanted to get the gospel to these unreached peoples in the jungles in South America? Well, one of his biographers says that he was, uh, along with his siblings, were taught by their parents to both one be devoted to the Lord, and to be adventurous. If you study his life, you discover that he was very, very serious about his faith in Christ, but he was also quite daring in his approach to life. And so I think in some ways that may have been a spark when he was young to think about going to a hard place. You know, we weren't emphasizing back then the hard places. Unreached people groups had not really become a category yet like they like it would later. But he decided that, now he thought about initially going to India, but the Lord opened up a door for them to head south, and he found out about the Akas, which were a unreached people. He's very clear in his uh, journal writings, blistering the American church for being fat, satisfied, and paraphrasing here, having churches on every corner. And he had a hard time understanding why we would be so active here and spend so much of our money here when there are literally millions who've never even heard the name of Jesus the first time. Mm. And I think the Lord just began to grow that seed in his heart. Wheaton only, I think, inflamed that. Wheaton at that time was also very mission-minded, and we're sending missionaries out all around the world. So you can see step by step by step how God was working in his life that eventually led him to head to a country like Ecuador. Mm, yeah. You know, that's, it's interesting. You talk about the prayer journals. I mean, I have a quote from one of his journals that talks about, there was a lot of people I think who wondered, Jim was a pretty gifted guy. So what, why not stay in America, try to do ministry in America. You could make maybe a really great impact on the church here. And there's a quote where he says, I dare not stay home while the Kichuas perish. What if the well-filled church in the homeland needs stirring? Question mark. They have the scriptures. They have Moses and the prophets and a whole lot more. Their condemnation is written on their bank books and in the dust on their Bible covers. So he, he was not holding back, very direct, very bold in his language about kind of the, the state of the church in the United States and why he felt compelled to go. I think one thing that's interesting about talking through his life in Wheaton is, you know, oftentimes we don't maybe realize 
kind of the context of what's going on. This is, would be the late 40s, early 50s. Billy Graham also was a graduate of Wheaton. He was six years older than Elliot and had graduated, you know, so six years ahead of him around this same time was starting to do some of his crusades. And so I think his first crusade was in the late forties, maybe 6,000 people or so in Michigan. So this is an interesting time. There's a lot of synergy, excitement going on at Wheaton as it relates to evangelism and mission. And so, yeah, Jim starts hearing about these these unreached, uncontacted peoples in the heart of the jungle and, and feels compelled to, to go to them. But he, he didn't go alone, right? He, he decided there was some wisdom, not going by himself, but he went with a team, right? Yes. Eventually, he went down with one other male individual, and then the team began to expand out from there. Again, I was watching, and one of the things I know we'll talk about is some resources on the uh, life of Jim and Elizabeth Elliott. There's a movie, The End of the Spear, but there's also Through the Gates of Splendor. And uh, in that, Elizabeth said, well, Jim told me that even though he'd fallen in love with her, that one, uh, he thought she'd get in the way of him going to the jungles to share the gospel. Then he comes back and says, well, you're going to have to learn all the languages, not just Spanish. Is it Kichwa? That's right. And then later, when he found out about the Wadanis, well, you have to learn that language, too. And uh, so she said, well, I did. You know, eventually he brings her down. He proposes. They have a very simple ceremony and they'll have a, a baby girl shortly thereafter. But, yes, he saw the wisdom, Paul, of having a team, knowing that that would be essential for, I think, uh, the longevity of the mission mm-hmm. there. They needed mm-hmm. the encouragement. They needed the different gifts uh, that each of them had, both in terms of their training, but also in terms of their disposition and personality. He was uh, very young, but had some real wisdom there. Mm. That's right. Yeah. Several of the other team members, he he went originally with his friend Pete Fleming and then was later joined by Nate and Ed. And then eventually Roger joined in as well. And they all were gifted differently. Some were pilots, some were kind of more skilled in medical. And so it was interesting. Some were more gifted in language. And so there was really kind of a unique combination of these guys that came together. Again, just something for us to consider when we think in 2023, and we tend to think about Christian colleges and campuses, seminaries, we both work on seminary campuses. And we tend to think about people who are really gifted. And the immediate thought is, well, they need to go on to be a pastor of a megachurch, or they need to go on to be a, a professor or a seminary president or something along those lines. And certainly God calls people to do that. But I'm just amazed at kind of the, the single-minded focus of these men and eventually their wives as well, and their desire to kind of say, you know, yes, I could be a lawyer. Yes, I could be a doctor. Yes, I could be this or that. But God has people who have not heard that he desires to have a saving relationship with. And so feeling compelled to go and kind of pushing those things aside. I mean, I think some of one of his friends was studying law when, mm-hmm. when Jim he talked kind of, him out of it, kind of persuaded him to, to get on a boat with him and go to Ecuador. So just a, an amazing challenge for us to consider in, in 2023, that the sacrifice, the, the devotion, the commitment to take the gospel to those who needed to hear it. It's really humbling that these men and women really believed that getting the gospel to the unreached was so important that they just kind of threw caution to the wind about all the things that we so value in our culture and our context today, even unfortunately, even in the church. That's right. It kind of points out to us that we have made 
unknowingly, maybe subconsciously, we made idols out of comfort, safety, security, some of these kinds of things, but also a reminder to us that that we should be willing to send our best, our best and our brightest. You know, we we don't want to export to the world those who who are, are failures or those who can't cut it here. We need to be willing to to send our best. Now, when they decide, committed, resolved, hey, we're going to go to to Ecuador, a little different than journeys today. You know, today you or I, if we wanted to go to Ecuador, we hop on a plane, and six, seven, eight hours later, we're in Ecuador. For these folks, they had to hop on a on a boat. And they had to sail for an 18-day trip from California down to Quito, Ecuador. They get there. They spend the first six months in the capital city there learning Spanish, which shows you, again, kind of how gifted they were to be able to pick up some language pretty quickly, pretty fast. And then they end up moving to kind of Shandia, to this this mission station, was kind of the the model, the prevailing model for mission at that time was to have these mission bases and these mission stations in different locations. So they make their way to Shandia there to start doing their work, doing some ministry there. But as you mentioned in the beginning, they eventually kind of have a vision for the Alcas or the Wadanis or the Huranis. There's different names that are used for these these tribes. Can you talk some about their plan, their approach to get to the Alcas and maybe who were the the Alcas, the Wadanis? Well, these were very remote, almost savage people groups that had virtually no contact whatsoever with the modern world. Getting to them, first of all, was a big challenge. That that was uh, not an easy thing to do. Then as they began to research, they came across the fact that there was this even more remote group, the, the Wadanis, that had, one, virtually no contact at all with the outside world. What little they had had not been positive, because you had these oil companies encroaching and uh, there's stories of some of their pioneers going out into the jungles, never coming back. The Wadanis were evidently very adept with their spears and they were also very vicious. They also had very much a revenge kind of culture as well as a fear of outsiders. And Jim and his team became aware of them And again, God just put it on their heart. Well, if you're looking for unreached, here's the unreached of the unreached. And no one's ever taken the gospel to them. They have no access to it. They're also vicious. They need the gospel. And so they began to pray and strategize about how to get there. And they also recognized it would be dangerous because there had been missionaries prior, forget exactly how long, 18 years earlier, different part that had also been martyred. They actually talk about learning from what did not work with their predecessors that could work as they tried to engage the Wadani. And of course, we can talk about the dropping gifts from the airplane and leaflets that had certain messages and trying to at least pave the road, so to speak, for then engaging them directly. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. So they, I mean, they had a access to a plane. They had a, a pilot, you know, Nate Saint was a pilot. And so evidently said, very good. That's right. Yeah. I mean, he he kind of created this strategy where he would circle this beach and he would circle and circle and circle. And what that would do is they would lower a basket and that would keep the basket in place. They would put gifts in there. They learned some basic phrases that they would shout out over a megaphone to try to tell people, hey, we're we're friendly. We're friendly. We, we want to invite you to come and eventually invited them to come to this area that they called Palm Beach. 
They were excited initially because they had some initial contact, I think, with a man and a woman or a young girl. They came out and, and they were very friendly and things seemed to be off to a good start. But what they didn't realize was, again, just the, the nature of this particular tribe. This was an uncontacted tribe, you know, a group of people who really didn't have much access to the outside world and anything they thought about the outside world. They thought that anyone who was encroaching on their territory were cannibals uh, who was coming to eat them. And so that's why they had killed oil executives and they had killed others who had wandered into their territory. And so they see these men, they come out. A couple of these visitors are curious about the plane. There's a story of Nate actually taking one of them up into right. the plane and driving around or flying around the area. And he's calling out to people. And so uh, what you have happening then is the next day, some of the leaders of the tribe determining to, to come to this area, Palm Beach, and they want to eliminate these foreigners because they see them as a threat, even though there was one testimony of an older woman who said the foreigners seem to be friendly. The tribe leaders still determined that it was best to get rid of them. And so they come and they kind of develop a plan to get the men kind of in the water. And they have one group on one side, another group on the other side. They had spears, they had blowguns. As the story goes, I think it's January 8 or 9, 1956. These men wade into the water and they're attacked by the tribe. One of the things that's always been fascinating to me is the missionaries had access to firearms, to guns. But they had determined beforehand, even knowing the risk, knowing the danger, they had determined they were not going to use those guns. They were not going to use those weapons because they said, we know where we're going to spend eternity. These people do not. And so just a fascinating story. Obviously, they lose they lose radio contact with the, the home base and with their wives. And as the story goes, I think it's two or three days later, the United States actually sends in kind of a rescue plane. And they find the bodies uh, of these men dead, speared to death in the jungles of, of Ecuador. And so uh, in many ways, a, a tragic story of martyrdom, of, of just willing to count the cost to get the gospel to these people. And in some ways, if the story ended there, it would be tragic. The Great Commission is a call to go. And a call to go is a call to prepare. Whether you're called to advance the gospel in your local church or on mission fields around the world, Southern Seminary is committed to preparing you for a lifetime of faithful ministry. Designed with flexibility and personalization in mind, the Master of Divinity in Great Commission Studies allows pastors, missionaries, and ministry leaders to prepare for their own unique call to ministry. It's designed to equip students with the biblical foundation and the practical training needed to present the gospel clearly in cross-cultural missional settings. To learn more about the Master of Divinity in Great Commission Studies, go to sbts.edu bgs or go to the episode notes for this podcast and click the link to the Billy Graham School of Southern Seminary. There, you'll learn how listeners to this podcast can save $40 when applying for classes. That web address again is sbts.edu slash bgs. The story doesn't end there. Some of the good news is that a couple of the women end up staying behind. So can you talk to us a little bit about Elizabeth and Rachel and kind of their decision to, to remain there? Well, you're right. It would be tragic, except Elizabeth determined as did several of the other wives initially, that God had called them to be missionaries, and this was their new home. Through some providential events, Elizabeth, uh, Valerie, her daughter, and Rachel Saint, Nate Saint's sister, were invited to actually come and live among the Wadani, 
And uh, Elizabeth actually said, well, are y'all going to spear us too? And they laughed and said, well, of course not. You are now our friends. Mm-hmm. And uh, there's some remarkable footage through the gates of splendor where you see Valerie, when she finally came back with her mother to the States, they land in Miami and she asked her mother, why are all these people wearing clothes? Because the Wadanis were for the most part naked. Mm-hmm. And so Valerie ran around playing with the other little Wadani children, just like them. There's some footage of her running around like a Jaybird playing with them, but they begin to share the gospel and begin to share why the husbands had come. A remarkable thing happens. They begin to have mass conversion. One of the researchers pointed out that in a matter of a couple of years, murder dropped 90% among the Wadani. And he points out there was nothing that had changed in terms of their technology. Nothing had changed in terms of how they lived. Now, he was a secularist, but new knowledge. Well, yeah. Uh, the new knowledge of the gospel. Of course, later, one of the men that had actually participated in the killing of uh, the five men becomes a pastor and becomes extremely close with Nate Saint's son, who he began to later in testimony refer to him as he was like a father to me. And then his son referred to him like he was like my, he said he couldn't take the place of my granddaddy but he was like a granddaddy to mm. me. And the story's mm. just amazing. And again, the credit goes in particular to Elizabeth uh, and Rachel, who stay behind, move in, and live with the very people, share a meal with the very people that acknowledge that they had been responsible for the death of their husbands and their mm. brother. Yeah. You know, one of the fascinating things about Jim, and you look at his kind of his journals and you read, you know, he's passionate about getting the gospel to people who need to hear it. And he wanted people to be missionaries. He was working hard on Wheaton's campus to mobilize people. And sometimes maybe even to the point where maybe being a little bit over the top in terms of kind of guilt trips and things he might put on people to get them there. So he had this desire, but I think it's interesting that in his death, God probably used him more than maybe he would have in his life. If he had lived for another 40, 50 years, that the, the impact that he had in his death in mobilizing a generation of people to consider counting the cost and following Christ to the mission field, I think is pretty amazing. You know, he was only 29 years old when he died, but 29 years, the Lord used him in a, in a pretty impactful way. You know, it's interesting. David Brainerd died at 29. Henry Martin died at 30. And then very unknown, but there was a female missionary named Harriet Newell, she was going over, she and her husband, with the Judsons that were going to work together. The Judsons, of course, became Baptist on the way, uh, but the Newells were congregationalists. It's one of the great tragedies, and at the same time, amazing what God did. Harriet's 18 years old. Mm. She gets pregnant on the way over. She has the baby on the ship because they were not allowed to dock in India. Her husband delivers the baby. The baby dies. Five days later, she dies, dies at 19, never made it to the mission field. Mm. But back home, when they brought her back and had her memorial service, people all over America, women said, we'll go and take her place. And there was an explosion for about 20 years of little girls being named Harriet. 
Mm. Here's a lady again that never even got to the field, and yet God used her death remarkably mm. for the cause of missions. And I don't think anyone has influenced 20th century missions and mobilized people to go, as you just mentioned a moment ago, more than Jim and Elizabeth Elliot. Mm. I want to switch to some more kind of rapid fire questions as we kind of close out okay. our, our time. What are a few good books or resources that you might recommend for our listeners who are wanting to learn more about Jim Elliott, Elizabeth Elliott? Well, as I mentioned earlier, there are two uh, movies that are free, uh, at least on Tubi they are, but I think there's other avenues well. Through the Gates of Splendor It's more of a documentary. I like it actually better than Into the Spear, which is kind of a synodoc, uh, half cinematic and half documentary. You can learn a lot. Uh, by just watching those. I'd encourage parents to watch them with their children at appropriate age because it's pretty rough. Then you've got Elizabeth Elliot's work through the Gates of Splendor and in the Shadow of the Almighty. That one is where you have such a large, uh, I believe that's I'm correct there, Paul, Jim Elliot's diary, which is remarkable. I mean, and he didn't, you know, he only journaled for a few years. Just the depth of his theological understanding, his commitment to the cause of Christ and missions. Of course, that's where you find his very famous statement. He is no fool who gives up that which he cannot keep to gain that which he cannot lose. You can see the exact date and everything when he just pinned that in his journal. So those would be two books in particular, along with those two films that would get someone immersed very quickly into the life of Jim and Elizabeth Elliot. Yeah, that's great. Yeah. And I would also recommend a book I, I picked up in college is the journals of Jim Elliott. You have the you know, kind of his journals all the way from his kind of junior year in college. Oh, it's just the journals. It's just the journal. That's all it is. Okay. It's not, I mean, it's, you almost kind of re, can read it kind of devotionally. That's kind of the way that, that he treated the journal was kind of each day he, he would write in kind of what scripture text he read that day, Genesis 32. He might make a little comment about comment, it here yeah. there. Then the next day would be Genesis 33 and he'd make a comment about this or that. And what captures a lot of the things he was praying, a lot of the things that the Lord was doing in his heart and his life while he's wrestling through the call to missions, while he's wrestling through kind of his desire to maybe want to marry Elizabeth, maybe yes. not want to marry Elizabeth. Oh. So there's a, there's a lot that, that goes in there as well, which I think is fascinating because I mean, we have students, I know you all have students as well that are trying to think through, okay, what does it mean? I feel like God's calling me to go to the mission field. I also think I want to be married, but I haven't found that person yet. I don't know how to process through that, or I'm dating somebody. And there's some interesting things there, I think, that would bring about some some conversation. I would agree. Uh, as well. Do you have a favorite Elliot story or a favorite Elliot quote that you kind of like to go to? Well, I do love the quote, of course, where he talks about giving all for Christ and the fact that you lose nothing in terms of that. You gain everything by following Christ. But there's another place, Paul, it's very short, but he basically says to the Lord, make me dangerous for you. Mm make me dangerous for you. And of course, he meant by that dangerous to Satan and the demons and all that that encompasses, but that he had that kind of mindset to me. I, I wish Chuck Lawless, one of our dear friends and one who teaches here now used to be, actually, you were the Graham Dean for a while, so was he. He prays on a regular basis. I know he got it from Elliot. Lord, make our students dangerous to Satan and his kingdom. Mm. And that uh, touched me tremendously because it's just simple. But yeah, would to God that we would be dangerous to the powers of darkness. Amen. Amen. The next question is a fill in the blank question. 
Uh, you can fill in however you want. The best thing about Jim Elliott's life and ministry was blank. He was sold out completely to the Lordship of Jesus Christ. And though he enjoyed life and uh, evidently was quite the prankster in his playful moments, there was never a doubt in anyone's mind that preeminently giving his all for Christ colored his entire life. It was the lens through which he saw everything. And it impacted, you know, how he sort of courted and didn't court uh, Elizabeth. Uh, I mean, it's amazing they got married when you consider some of the things he said to her. But she yeah. was that kind of lady that actually appreciated because she was the same way. She was mm -hmm. also sold out to Jesus. And so she's like, well, what else would a person sold out to Jesus say to me? Well, if you can't do this, then we shouldn't get married. And uh, mm -hmm. I don't know, I have time for you. A woman's really not going to work out very well down there in the jungle. And you're <laughs> like, are you kidding me? And yet, instead of it driving her away, I think it attracted both of them closer to one another. That's right. That's right. All right. Last question. If Elliot were here today, how would he challenge us? And maybe how would he encourage us? Wow. There's no question he would challenge us in terms of the idols that we have allowed to usurp the place that rightly belongs only to Christ. He would take us to task about our comforts our indulgences, how we have unwittingly been seduced by the American dream and the way that we look at things. I think also he would beat the drum for churches to be great commissioned churches. I think he would be mm -hmm. so invaluable, Paul, in just that regard that he would remind us, you cannot really be a faithful, authentic New Testament church without the great commission undergirding all that you do. And I think he would be such a help. And that's why I love for people and like you encourage people, go read his journal, go read the books by Elizabeth Elliott. You can't be the same. I mean, it's just going to change your life if you work your way through those works. That's good. Dad, thank you so much for your time and for the conversation today. Well, thank you. We both got a chance to talk about one of our heroes and may God raise up more Jim and Elizabeth Elliott's in this generation for his glory. We need them. Amen. To hear more conversations like this, please subscribe to this podcast. Be sure to follow us on social media. Thanks again for listening to this episode. Thank you for joining us on Amazon to the Himalayas. This podcast is brought to you by the Billy Graham School at Southern Seminary. Please visit our website, www.sbts.edu bgs, where you can subscribe to the show and learn more. Also, if you have found these conversations helpful, please leave us a comment or a review and encourage your friends to subscribe to the podcast. Be sure to follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter for more. This is Amazon to the Himalayas podcast.